This is What's Your Why presented by the Women in Business Spectacular, a unique equestrian competition that encourages the involvement of women in business and highlights the successes and achievements of those within. Welcome to this special six-part series where you'll meet some fabulous guests of the equestrian competition and will, fingers crossed, learn something new about their path to success and views of the future. Now let's get started, but not before shouting out a huge thank you for giving us your time, and more importantly, for all the support and encouragement along the way. Now sit back, relax, and get your listening ears out, because these women in business have something to say. Thank you so much for joining us on this special series of What's Your Why, presented by the Women in Business Spectacular. It's an initiative offered by the Women in Business Spectacular Horse Show, which is coming up in July. And uh, everybody needs to know everything about it and make sure that you attend because it is going to be a significant event. Luis Sirio, thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to start off by asking you just to introduce yourself a little bit and touch on some aspects of your career path that you've gone on in life. My name is Luis Sirio. I live in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. I own and operate a farm called Derby Down, which was also my parents' farm before me. I have been in the show horse business for a long, long time, probably over 40 years. And I have been so lucky to have had some of the most wonderful horses and clients along the way and have had some wonderful success uh, in the show ring with my horses. It's been a, a wonderful life. It's a real lifestyle. And I have two children and one granddaughter that's 14, and she also rides English with me, and she does the Western with the barrel racing and pole bending. So we have... Oh, wow. Yeah, we have kind of a... Crossover. We've got a crossover. Kind of a, <laughs> a mixed farm here. We have cows, and you know we all live here on the farm together, my son and daughter-in-law and my daughter, and of course, my granddaughter also. So Oh, that sounds fun quite a commune. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So tell me, what exactly do you do? I know that you mentioned you're in horses, but what is your involvement for those of our listeners that don't know? Well, I would give myself the title of equestrian, but when you're an equestrian, you're a little bit of everything, or you can be a little bit of everything. I'm a rider, a trainer, a coach, a caretaker of horses, a course designer, uh, sometimes I think I'm a veterinarian. Uh, there's just a lot of aspects to being involved with horses when you're a trainer and you're in the position of making decisions on what the horses do and what the clients do. Just a big, wide range to all of that. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's a common practice for equestrians wearing all those hats? I think that is definitely a very common theme throughout our business. Not only are, you know, you can also be a judge or a steward, you can do courses. There's just a whole lot of opportunity to be involved in this. And for sure, I think most people have a lot of hats that they wear. Yeah. So horse trainer came first, followed by a judge's card specifically about you. Is that the path that, that you followed? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I started out personally riding and showing. And then I got my judge's card and I did quite a bit of judging for a long time. I do not have a card now, but I made a very conscious choice that when my granddaughter was born, that I was not going to travel and 
that takes a lot of time and a lot of travel. And I didn't want to be away from my family that much anymore. So I don't have my card anymore. Okay. How has that sort of changed your path moving forward? It hasn't changed it a lot. I I don't really regret not having my card, truthfully. It's just such a difficult job now, and it's thankless. And it's really difficult because the exhibitors are often always mad. So I don't miss it at all. Yeah, for sure. That seems to be a common uh, trait of exhibitors nowadays, right? For sure. <laughs> my next question is, what was your career path and how did you get to where you are today? Well, I think I was really fortunate. I grew up pretty much on the farm where I live now. My mother taught riding. My parents, Mrs. Brown, Mrs. Warner, Mary Warner Brown. Yes. My parents were divorced when I was quite young. And she, as a single mother, had a string of school horses and taught riding five days a week and went to local horse shows on the weekend. I never really thought about doing anything else. I married when I was young and he was also in the horse business. And then we divorced. And I didn't really have an option, <laughs> truthfully, of doing anything else. <laughs> and not only that, I mean, I, I didn't get any child support at all. So I had to support my family, my kids. And you just kind of put one foot in front of the other and keep going. And, For sure. you know, you, you just make it work. And I think I was fortunate. You know, the 80s were great for the horse business and for horses, and it didn't cost as much. It was very important, but it didn't hold the same importance that it seems to now to your client. Mm -hmm. And it was just a great time to have the horses that I had. And, you know, fortunately, it supported me. I do have to say I did have to sell some jewelry once and I sold a car once just <laughs> pay my bills. But yeah, I think it was a great life, great way to come up. And again, the, our, our sport has changed so much since then. Well, I was going to ask that. I mean, I think that do you feel like there was maybe more opportunity available to equestrians in the 80s? I think in some ways there were, in some ways there weren't. Doing mainly hunters my whole life, by the late 80s, it became very apparent that the hunters were second fiddle to everything else. And we started, Jeff Teal and myself started the American Hunter Jumper Foundation, which was also world championship hunter rider, and started to really promote the hunters. And that is still active today. It's still one of the most important titles and classes to show in for riders today, which is, you know, very rewarding. It's coveted. Yeah, I mean it, it's a it's a really big deal, and the you know the whole system itself. It's not chasing points; it's your best four horse shows in your region, and some of those protocols are still in place today. You know, it was a great time to be able to produce something like that, and Jeff is such a great critical thinker and such a great organizer. We did a lot of great things together. I, I usually had the ideas, but he actually put it together and made it all work. Yeah. The sport back then had plenty of opportunities because again, the, I think it's because the cost wasn't so high. Right. It was doable for a lot of people that were not billionaires. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people enjoyed it a lot more back then. Definitely. So it was in your blood. You never 
you never really wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or a hamburger flipper or anything other than be an equestrian? I did not. I really never thought of trying something new or different. I didn't have these great goals or this thing I had to be or do. I just kind of kept going on this path that, you know, I was successful at it. So you just keep doing it. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. So if you were to advise somebody, if I were to get to where you are today, or if I chose to follow the same or similar career track, how would I do that? I would say that a lot of the track should be the same. I feel that nowadays the kids want to come in at the top of the sport. They want to be the top rider, the top everything. But I think that what made a lot of us that are still professionals today, that are still successful, came because we started at a lower level and we made a lot of mistakes there. And we learned a lot about business and about clients and mostly about horses. And then we were able to kind of move up through the ranks. And a lot of kids today don't want to do that. They want to, again, it's a great lifestyle at the top of the sport, but it's really learning so many different aspects of it when you're young and at a different level that really can make you successful at the top level. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody who was young and, you know, maybe aging out of their junior years and becoming a professional? Is there something that you absolutely hands down tell people that are in that situation? Well, first, I would tell them to go to college and get a business (laughs) degree because a lot of this is about business. And then I would tell them that they need to work with someone that that is respected and that they can learn from, not just how to ride, because most of those kids are really good riders. Yeah, yeah. But they have to learn to be horsemen and horsewomen, and they have to learn how to talk to their clients and what's important for their horses. And a little bit, we've lost a little horsemanship because we show so much that it's all about showing And I think the horses don't last as long as they used to. I think it's hard on them what we ask them to do. But back to what I would say to somebody is that get with somebody that you respect and that does a good job and you can learn from and really take the time not only to learn, but to help that person. You know, I feel like some of the students that I've had, they've learned a lot, but they haven't really reached the level of me relying on them so much. And I, I... that's what right. you you want to become the person that that other trainer relies on. And then you've really learned your job. Yeah. Is there any sort of program that maybe USEF offers or is there a program out there that connects professionals with young people that are, you know, wanting to start? Or maybe what would you advise? What, you know, how would somebody go about doing that if they recognize they're finished college and they need to get connected with a well-respected professional? Is it just as simple as walk up and ask? Mostly, I think a lot of it is that you need to do your homework a little bit. and Maybe it's someone that's local to you and easy to get to, or sometimes it's just a, you know, a person that you've seen show a lot or you've studied your sport and you know who's successful and who's winning and you, know, you, you try to get in with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you had to do it all over again, would you? Absolutely. Exactly the same? Change nothing? Change nothing. That's amazing. It's been very rewarding, but I have to say that it's really exciting and 
fun to be able to compete with men and not feel like you're ever being, there's no prejudice against you. You can beat them or they can beat you, but it's a, it's, you're on the same level all the time. You know, there's still a lot of parts of our sport that men dominate, but in the show ring, not really. When you walk in the gate, you're, you're an equal. And it's funny, not, uh, not ever being in your shoes in the equestrian business at all, but coming from a different perspective, it really is very much like that. You never, ever, ever feel like whether you're male or female, it just never, ever plays a part. It's not even something like, ooh, it used to be this way and now it's this way and it's just accepted. It just really has never, ever played a part, I don't think. No. In all the years, I've never really felt that at all. No. It's really nice as a as a woman to be involved in that, to have the ability to have influence over a sport and have men respect you or listen to you and, again, be able to help things move along. Mm-hmm. I was looking through some of your horse athlete roster over the years, and I don't think I've ever had an, a nice opportunity to let you know what an icon you are to people. Well, that's very nice of you to say. I don't feel that way. I feel like just a normal, very fortunate person that has been able to make some good decisions in my life and have been surrounded by brilliant people. And I think that's one thing that, again, our sport allows you to be surrounded by people. Jeff Teal is a perfect example to me. He's a a wonderful person. He's smart. He's articulate. He's a critical thinker. And I'm really proud of the things that he and I did together. You know, that that was really a huge part of the progression of this sport. Absolutely. Are you guys still involved with Brandywine? No, Jeff managed Brandywine for us for a couple years. And yeah. then he decided to step away. And now Paul Jewell is doing it. I'm involved with the Moorcroft Conservation Foundation. I'm on the board there, so I get to see him and he and Charlie a lot in Florida, go to and see all the animals. And I told Charlie that that was going to be my next stop. You know, my conversation with him this morning was my first time meeting him. Well, really meeting him. I mean, I know him from ringside from years ago, but uh, I was like, next time I'm in Palm Beach, I'm coming to snuggle some skunks. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> you tell you brought him to the horse show one day? Oh, no. Oh, he brought him to the horse show one day. We were all holding him. And my granddaughter was with me. And she said after we left, she said, they kind of stink. Not like a skunk, but they stink. <laughs> and I'm like, no, they don't. So I'm sitting at, oh, on the sofa later that night. And I'm like, what is that smell? I'm like, it's like <laughs> this musky. I don't know what it was, but they were so cute. I would think even after descented that I would I'm shocked that they smell actually. Yeah. You know what's really exciting to be on that board because of course you know already that that foundation is to give to other foundations. Yes. And it was fun one of the things that I brought to their attention was called the Equus Survival Fund and that is about endangered horse breeds. And they gave some money to them, but now they are coming to Brandywine. They are one of our oh, benefactors cool. and they're bringing their Akiltechi horse, which is one of the Briar horses oh. to promote yeah. their foundation too. 
So it's kind of fun that it all got connected somehow. And that lady, for sure, the lady that runs the Equus Survival Fund, used to come to the Devon Horse Show and walk around. And that's where Brandywine is held. So a lot of connections there. It's amazing that it's such a small world and everything seems to be interconnected. I was saying to Heather before we jumped on this podcast, I was like, so here's a kind of uncanny connection is we're talking to Charlie again, somebody who just said yes, because I asked. And I said, oh, and his partner is Jeff. And Jeff and Louise have done business together in Brandywine. And we're talking to Louise later on in the afternoon, which I thought was really yeah. cool. And Heather and I both believe in something saying something's supposed to happen from somewhere, whether it's another realm or the universe or whatever, but it's happening for a yeah. reason. So it's always interesting to hear about those connections and how well-connected equestrians are. Yes, for sure. It's a small world. Very small world. Very small world. Are you planning your show schedule this summer? Don't miss the first ever Saratoga Women in Business Spectacular happening July 13th to 17th at White Hollow Farm. This unique horse show is created by women, operated by women, benefiting women's health and showcasing women in business. This event is something that has never been done before. The Saratoga Women in Business Spectacular will break the mold by having women fulfill all positions for the show while showcasing women in business in the equine world and beyond. This important initiative will not only be beneficial for all that partake, men are certainly invited to attend, but it will also be educational and philanthropic. Proceeds for this event will be donated to organizations that support women's health. Exhibitors and attendees will be offered multiple opportunities throughout the show and beyond to meet, interact, listen and learn from a variety of remarkable women willing to share their career stories and career paths. If you're interested in participating or just want more information, please visit saratogahorseshows.com and we'll see you there. Do you think there's anything that can be done that, that will halt the equestrian industry for continuing to spiral out of control? And I, I don't really think that's a fair statement to say, but just as you said, you know, the 80s were so different than it is now. Is there any stopping that? Is there any stopping growth or change or? I don't think there really is much we can do about it because not only has it changed in the cost of horses and the cost of keeping them and the, you know, your grooms and your staff and all, but when you go to a horse show, you require good footing. You require top course designers and judges and jumps and so you require all this and there's such an expense to it yeah. that I don't know how, but I have to tell you that when I had the idea to start Brandywine, I was like, oh, I am going to show these people that it does not have to cost this much to run a horse show. <laughs> and? Well, first of all, you don't rent the Devon grounds. <laughs> it's <laughs> well. going to be cheap. But you know, if you really want to produce a good product, you have to have top people, good time schedules, you have to have prize money, you have to have good classes, and all those things cost money. And I, I don't really see how the top of the sport is going to get cheaper in any way. I would like to say, and it is happening, that the hunters get more prize money. You know, our prize money's been stuck in the 80s, basically, but now we're having $100,000 classes and 
I think there's 150,000 at um, Split Rock this year. And we are seeing some prize money that will help offset it. Now, it takes the million dollar horse to win that prize money, but at least there's a chance for somebody to come along and maybe win it that doesn't have the million dollar horse too. And the other part of it, the good thing is the green incentive program is a great program because it's open to everybody. It's not crazy money. You have the state classes to earn your enrollment fee back. There are a lot of programs like that that I think really promote the sport and really do allow people that are not willing to spend all that money going so hard or having that that horse. And, you know, the greener horses can cost a lot less sometimes, too. Yeah. I think it's interesting that in the, uh, I don't even know the years, but at one point in the equestrian industry, the equitation horse was born. Suddenly, you know, whether that was maybe the 80s, late 80s, I'm guessing, you know, where it's suddenly, okay, well, equitation divisions and big X and things of that nature. So now we have to have not just a hunter, but an equitation horse. And I think in the last 20 years, even less, probably 10, it's an interesting uh, movement that the derby horse has now been born. It has, for sure. And, and that's exciting, too, because that program also doesn't require you to show week after week after week. You can qualify for the derbies by winning $500, any derby, and then you don't have to show again till derby finals. So those programs are promoting lack of showing. And once you get a top derby horse, you don't show it every week in high performance. You save it and you save those, you know, those top jumps that are, that are still in there. Look at Brunello. He won three times and he didn't hardly show at all. And then they would go to a jumper class and come and do derby finals. You know, they, you, you preserve that horse. Yeah. Yeah. So then from a trainer's point of view, pick your brain just for a second. How do you, if you're showing less to preserve your horse, how do you keep them on point for the horse show? If say you're only showing three, four, five times in an entire season. Is that just all homework that you work on? Well, I think it depends on the horse a lot because being involved with El Primero when he won the Derby Finals, you know, he's a horse who doesn't need to practice jumping all the time. He needs to stay fit. He needs to be strong. And then you have to figure out when to peak. You know, you, you practice jumping for two weeks ahead of time, or you might always be doing little cavalettis or just something to... Uh, keep his jumping muscles going. But basically, it depends a lot on the horse. And it might take a different horse a month to peak for derby finals. But with a horse like El Primero, he would go to Kentucky, he would go do the high performance the first day, and then you would decide if he needs high performance the second day, or do you just wait and keep him sharp for the derby? So Every horse is different. Some horses might need more showing because they might want to overjump or they might be a little spooky or, you know, they, they need the repetition of it. So it, it all depends on as you as trainer being able to determine what those horses need. Yeah. And let's face it, if they know how to jump, they know how to jump, right? Yeah. A lot of them are, you know, you, you want them to be sharp and crisp and not 
just overdone or too quiet. You really want them to be kind of ex- excited, but not in a, you know, a bad way. Mm-hmm. Is it a completely different feel from, say, getting on a, well, it's not a fair comparison. I was going to say getting on a pre-green horse, because of course that's a different feel, but, you know, maybe getting on a, a regular working hunter and a derby horse, is it completely a different feel from a riding point of view? Well, I think the one thing that the the derby horses have to really have is scope. I mean, you've got to be able to really, uh, even though there's only so many high options, you really have to be able to excel at those. So for sure, most of the horses that do high performance and are jumping around the forefoot, they do the derbies well because they have a lot of practice at it. And every horse feels differently. You know, every horse has a different feel to it. Some of them, you feel like they're at the end of their scope when you do it. And other ones feel like you could jump a whole derby course at, you know, four foot nine. So again, it, it's always about the horse and and listening to them and what they need and what they don't need and trying to figure out what the best best program is for them. Definitely. On a different note, I have a question for you if you have a bit of time. I read that your farm may have served as part of the Underground Railroad. Yep. My farm, my house that I live in, that I'm sitting in right now as a slave seller. Where, really? Well, I live in Chester County, and that was a, a huge Quaker area, and the Quakers were very sympathetic to the slaves. And I'd love to think that Harriet Tubman actually stayed here once. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That'd be so cool. Let's think it. But yeah, this whole area in Kennett Square has an Underground Railroad Museum, but there are a number of homes in the area that have uh, part of the Underground Road or a slave cellar in it, which is pretty cool. And is that just documented, like in historical documents, or is there actual evidence that you've seen in your house or on the farm? Oh, there's a big hole in the ground in my well, that would be it basement. That my basement is a dirt floor. The house is I don't know, 200 years old or whatever. It's very old, and the story goes that my mother always she was good at stories, but they would hide down there and they would put boards over it, and then they put the dirt on the top so you couldn't see it. Originally, it had a tunnel that went out and crossed out to the road so that they could come in off of a tunnel, too. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Another fun fact, Derby Down. Yes. The name came from a poker game in Unionville, the original farm up there was called Derby Down. And there was a a poker game at at this farm. And the guy got to where he'd lost everything. And he said, he put his derby down, his hat, you know, a derby. Oh, yeah. And he ended up winning the poker game and winning the farm. So they called wow. derby down. <laughs> that is interesting. I love that. And then when my parents <laughs> moved from there, they just kept the name. For sure. It's been around for a long time, right? 1800s, 1700s, the farm. This farm? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It's really old here. It's really old. I used to have to call the carpenter to open a window, but. I live, uh, as you know, I mean, I'm from Toronto area, Canada, and so is Heather. And I live in a house that's mm, 130 years old. And um, I live in a small town called Orangeville, and it used to be a dry county, I guess, during Prohibition. And I have a dirt floor as well. We're doing a big renovation. We're not going to touch the basement, but there's also a hole that goes underneath the road. 
but they didn't say it was for um, the Underground Railroad. They said it was for rum runners. Oh, gosh. That's yeah, right? When this was a dry county because it used to go underneath the road and towards the stockyards where people used to, I guess, come and <laughs> bring the booze. That's awesome. <laughs> right yeah so we have a whole like book that goes with this house that we told the the lady that we bought the home from she passed away unfortunately she was 96 but she lived here for 65 years and we've had her kids and her grandkids and everybody come to visit and they're like where's the book we're like well the book will just stay with the house (laughs) you know we'll add to it and if we ever sell it which we're not planning on but we'll make sure that the book and the history goes goes with the home it's awesome yeah, it's nice to live in in places that have a story, that's for sure. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Very cool. Louise, I can't thank you enough for being here with us and for saying yes to joining us on the podcast. I know that uh it's an interesting story and an interesting conversation for everybody that's choosing to listen. Thank you. I appreciate your time and your energy. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of What's Your Why, our listeners, guests, and our sponsors too. It's our hope that you enjoyed your time with us and possibly gained some new perspective as well. It's said that we can learn something new every day if we just listen, and that knowledge has a beginning, but no end. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, be safe, be well, and remember, always leave people better than you found them. A Twisted Spur Media Production.